Hello and welcome to the CRV Podcast. I'm Jeff Wright, one of the regular contributors to the CRV website, and on this episode I am interviewing Andrew Walker on a Christian and Baptist approach to the social order. If you aren't particularly familiar with Andrew's work, let me encourage you to add him to your list of people whose work you need to follow. Here's a sketch of what he does and where you can find him. Andrew T. Walker is Associate Professor of Christian Ethics and Apologetics at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and Associate Dean in the School of Theology. He also serves as Executive Director of the Carl F. H. Henry Institute for Evangelical Engagement. He is a Senior Fellow in Christian Ethics at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. He's also the Executive Editor of ICON, a journal for Biblical Anthropology, which is a publication of the Council for Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Earlier in his career, Andrew served as a policy analyst with the Heritage Foundation's DeVos Center for Religion and Civil Society. His writing and commentary have appeared in such national outlets as National Review, Public Discourse, the Institute for Family Studies, First Things, the Gospel Coalition, and many other places. Right now on my desk, I have his book, God and the Transgender Debate, which I recommend to any Christian trying to think through that subject. Andrew is passionate about equipping Christians to understand the moral witness of the gospel. In his roles, he researches, writes, and teaches about the intersection of Christian ethics, public policy, and the church's social witness. As I mentioned earlier, Andrew's work is something Christians in general, and Baptists in particular, should be thankful for. I trust you're going to find the interview both helpful and enjoyable, so let's get started on it now. Hey, Andrew Walker, thank you so much for taking time to be with us on the podcast. How are you today? I'm good, man. It's good to talk with you, Jeff. Uh, I guess we've known each other for a few years back from my time in Tennessee, had some good interactions and, and know we uh, have a lot of similar convictions. So it's, it's good to be with you today. Yeah, I was actually thinking when I met you, and I, I think it may have been on the post-Abergafell panel discussion that I moderated in Cookville. I think that's right. Any Anytime there are people trying to convene uh, causes on behalf of the permanent things. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna find common cause. So I appreciate things that you've been doing as well. Well, on that subject of the permanent things, when when I reached out, I pitched you on sort of the broad question, and I realize it's a broad question of whether or not 2020 is demonstrating that the liberal social project in the United States of America has failed. And um, I guess the best place for me to go to where. That question originated uh, was Patrick Deneen in, in 2018 writing Why Liberalism Failed. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously, with your work, you're familiar with the argument. Uh, for our listeners, I'm going to give a summary, Andrew, and then you correct what I got wrong, okay? Okay, sure. So, Deenan basically sees a fundamental commitment to individualism as a point of agreement between what we might call radical progressivism and then also conservatism, but they have to wrestle through how that is fleshed out. And that commitment to individualism for for both sides of that dichotomy ends up undermining institutions that are needed to maintain uh, a shared space, society, and culture. And so he raises the question, if, if this has been undone, why did it become undone? Uh, do you think that's a fair summary? And even if it is, what needs to be added to the to the summary? Yeah, so I, I think that's I think that's a good initial foray into the the topic. It's a it's a massive topic because I mean fundamentally, you know, modernity and the West have been trying to solve this this mystery and riddle of for the past five hundred years of how do you have a functioning civil society 
where you don't have essentially a, a church or religious establishment. Uh, you know, in, in older paradigms, it was the religious establishment um, with the state that kind of provided the overarching narrative and kind of moral horizon for the broader culture. Um, and so that's, you know, if you take a look at the last 500 years, a general overview would be to say that, you know, that that alliance has, has broken um, and we've had uh, an increasing secularizing state. And then religion, to some regard, kind of going off on the margins. Not entirely. I mean, America is a secular nation in the sense of it not being um, a historically established uh, church-state arrangement. But religion has been very, very bright, vibrant uh, in the American context uh, since our founding in, in 1776. Um, and so w- one of the problems with the whole issue around liberal democracy is it's people tracing one single thread from 500 years ago and projecting all of our contemporary problems onto one particular narrative. And mm-hmm. I, it's not that that's wrong necessarily. It's just I think history is full of too, too many complexities and too many contingencies to say it's simply the result of, of one thing. I mean, Jonah Goldberg, uh, who's one of my favorite political commentators, he, he kind of always rails against this notion of what he calls one thingism. And this notion that one thing can simply explain uh, everything in society, kind of a grand unifying theory. Now, as Christians, we do believe in one thingism. There's no sure. doubt about that. We believe Jesus Christ is is the Logos. He's the Lord. Um, the, the question that we wrestle with in a fallen society is: Can is there a one thingism that can make sense of people who are unregenerate trying to live lives that? resemble some form of morality and, and decency and civilization. And so that's what the whole question about liberal democracy really gets back to is who are we as persons and how to how do we structure our societies when there's a range of difference on how people understand what the true good and beautiful is. And guys like Deneen um, make a lot of really good stringent critiques. Uh, I, I, I would not put myself on their side of the aisle um, but they make good critiques um, where you have liberalism that we uh, and I'm talking about kind of small L liberalism, not progressivism. Sure. Where you have liberalism that is basically trying to focus on hyper autonomy and putting choice as kind of the 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 raison d'etre of society. You're going to have a society that is loose from all moral anchors and moral bearings. Um, but this gets back to a, 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 a part of the conversation I want to bring into it is, is whose definition of liberalism? Because hmm. to me, they have a very pessimistic um, critique of liberalism as though liberalism has nothing to do with Christianity. And that's just not how I want to define liberalism. Um, the, the, the issue of liberalism can be kind of, I don't want to say it's subjective, but it's, it's, it's not simply, um, it's not simply a term that can be defined by by one crowd. Um, you know, I, I think you can make a, a case, and especially as a Baptist, I would make this case. There are aspects of liberalism that we ought to very much stand behind. And, and again, I want to emphasize: I'm not talking about progressivism. I'm not a progressive. I'm talking about liberal order in the sense of uh, freeing the church from the state. Uh, so that's that's a gift of liberalism. Another gift of liberalism is this emphasis on constitutional order, the rule of law, this notion of um, natural rights 
the, the notion of the primacy of the individual. Um, those are things that we can look to from the Christian inheritance, uh, you know, from the Judeo-Christian worldview. Uh, you know, you, you, there are books like um, Larry Seidenkopf's Inventing the Individual, and he makes the argument that you don't have the development of Western Enlightenment individualism apart from a concept of the Imago Dei, uh, because the Imago Dei is the kind of the, the moral backdrop that gave the idea of the person's significance in the eyes of the law and in the eyes of society. Um, and so as a Baptist, and, and I'm kind of beating my Baptist drum here a lot, uh, I, I refer to myself as kind of what I would say is an Augustinian liberal uh, in the sense that I want to take the best of the liberal tradition, but understand that um, following kind of Augustine's city of man, city of God, um, all fallen political systems or all systems in a fallen political society are going to have abuses built into the system because it's it's conditioned by sin. Hmm. Um, and so to, for, for me, like I want to I want to advocate for the very best forms of liberalism um, at the same time saying liberalism in itself uh, doesn't have the moral safeguards to prevent liberalism from exploding and or imploding in on itself. Um, I actually did a, a tweet thread on this this morning. Um, you know, when we're talking about the Supreme Court, uh, people are applauding the the two recent wins on religious liberty, saying, "Hey, well, look, liberty is winning. Liberty is doing really, really well." Well, okay, but we also had the Bostock decision, mm -hmm. which is completely incompatible with a Christian worldview uh, as far as its impact on broader society. And so you can say that liberty is winning, um, but liberty is not a neutral term uh, that means the same thing to everyone. You and I's understanding of liberty would be a very different conception of liberty than what a progressive would mean by liberty. So it's a contested term. And what we need to be having, uh, and we are having this debate as a society, is whose version of liberty is going to win out? Uh, because built into an idea of liberty is a is a is an assumption about teleology as far as what society is for, what the human body is for, what our desires are for. Um, and to the extent that you have, you know, voices like Alexandria Ocasio Cortez and kind of that millennial view of liberty someday get appointed to the Supreme Court, um, you're going to have a a, a, a a defanged understanding of liberty because they're going to view Christian liberty uh, as harmful to a secular understanding of liberty. Uh, and so this this and this is kind of a long winded explanation. But uh, what we need to be doing, I think, as Christians is not handing over liberal order to liberal uh, to, to progressivism, um, because what liberal order is good at doing is preventing orthodoxies from taking root at the level of government and going after minority viewpoints. Um, like I'm, I'm, I'm not someone who believes in the myth of neutrality. That's impossible from a theological perspective. But I, I like liberal order in the sense that um, it's, it's a good constitutional system to protect those with dissenting viewpoints. Um, and I, I want to do my best to, pro to protect that version of liberalism um, for fear of once progressive orthodoxy gets mainstreamed into the government's uh, laws, uh, it's going to be bad for Christians. So again, a, lo a long-winded answer. We could keep going on all day because these are such pivotal answers. Uh, but I don't think the answer is to say, do away with liberalism. It's to practice better forms of liberalism.
there's no need to apologize for that answer. That's that's excellent. And it, it's a springboard to two things that I want to follow up on. Um, the second of those would be something that I, I think our listeners are familiar with. It's this ongoing debate between David French and so Rob Amari about what yeah, the future looks both like. Friends of mine. Yeah. Okay, great. Uh, but before that, you, you mentioned beating the Baptist drum. This is a Baptist facing podcast. Um, and, and I'll just tell you, as a Baptist, uh, in, in part because of your work, I'm coming back in, and, and, and looking about my assumptions about the social order of the church, the government. And I, I know why, as a Christian, I believe, say, in the First Amendment or um, religious liberty as, as you know, an obvious yeah. one. But I'm with you that I don't think the secular progressive can account for why that value should be held. But right, right. Well, let me throw it to you this way, Andrew. How do I not become a Baptist theonomist? Because that's kind of a crisis inside of me. And boy, I could use some help. Yeah, right. That's a great question. So, so yeah, wow, great question. So on the one hand, everyone is a theonomist, right? Mm, yeah. I mean, if you believe in any type of uh, rule, rule of law, um, there has a baked in authority to uh, to our understanding of society. So the progressive is a theonomist. Uh, mm. It's a question of who are they recognizing as the functional authority and functional god of their of their legal ethical code. So I think we want to separate out the metaphysical theonomy from like a legal theonomy, perhaps is is the is the clear or is the distinctions we want to draw. Um, from my point of view, uh, when we talk about separating church and state, um, that that is about separating institutional jurisdiction, um, keeping a religious body distinct from the apparatus of government. What that does not mean is separating the enterprises of or, or jurisdictions of religion and politics. Uh, and that's impossible to do because um, – if you're a Christian or or you're a a functioning sentient human being, um, you are being formed morally by value systems that you are necessarily going to bring into your politics. Sure. And so to that, I simply say yes and amen. Uh, it's simply having the category for knowing what what is it that you're bringing into your politics that's informing. Um, informing your your value system because you know the 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 issue today is that progressives talk about the separation of church and state but the problem is they're smuggling in their religion just under the name of progressivism mm -hmm. um and so they they keep they keep you know official religion out of the public square because it falls under the rubric of official recognized religion well theirs is just unofficial religion uh and so so what we want to do is be advocating for what we believe as Christians, unabashedly as Christians. Um, now, that doesn't mean that uh, you can simply just cite a verse and then pass a law. Uh, there are there are several steps that we can say as Baptists that is totally legitimate for us to make policies based off biblical principles. Um, and if you know we're Twitter friends, you probably see me harp and praise this notion of natural law all the time. And I'm I'm a very big proponent of natural law because I think natural law refers to the principles that Paul talks about as, as the law written on the heart. I think the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments are principles of natural law. 
that you can't jettison if you're going to have a functioning society. I mean, the sixth commandment, you know, thou shalt not murder. Well, we're all following the sixth commandment as Americans. Um, we just don't refer to it as the sixth commandment. We, we refer to it as the principle of natural law. But then even then, we're, we're, we're following it inconsistently as a society because we allow for the practice of abortion. So it's, a, it's an incomplete understanding of, of the sixth commandment. Um, but all that to say, uh, I, I personally, as a Baptist, have no problem for having a massively robust religious civil society, um, legislators who are informed by a Christian worldview, who operate at the level of their conscience on a Christian worldview. Uh, I'm simply saying, let's keep the, the, the institutional um, jurisdictions distinct. So I don't want I don't want Congress passing laws telling me which religion is right. I don't want laws saying I don't want I don't want Congress appointing bishops or appointing pastors for that sure. matter. But aside from that, like absolutely bring your religion into your politics. Um, but just just recognize that religion is usually a, a minor premise in terms of how it forms our worldview. You then have to have another premise that explains how your religious principle then has bearing on law and civil society. So I can quote the sixth commandment and say, thou shalt not murder. Um, I then have to be able to translate that into specific case law that which we do in, a, in society because we have varying degrees of uh, first degree murder, second degree murder, third degree murder. Um, so mm, so what scripture point. is doing as uh, what scripture is doing is talking about morality at the creational level um, it's then the job of government and law to fill in the specifics that are rooted in a creational principle that I would, you can call it natural law, you can call it creational theology, you can call it general revelation. Um, I, I just want to be clear that, I mean, there's, there's no one who is arguing from a so-called neutral space. Everyone is being formed by something. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a question of whether what you're being formed by is actually good for the common good. Yeah. And I actually wonder if I mean, I guess I'm I'm old enough to remember when the political left would have said basically religion has no place at the table in public policy. But with uh, Mayor Pete's candidacy, he was regularly making, right, right. you know, uh, conclude drawing conclusions on policy from his understanding of well, his faith. But but I mean, really, progressives don't even follow that rule by themselves because they're totally OK with religion when it's legislating for for leftist causes. Sure. Yeah. So you'll have guys like Doug, guys like Doug Padgett and Shane Claiborne who are totally opposed to the religious right. But these are the same guys who are literally putting together PACs and nonprofit organizations to encourage people to vote for Democratic candidates and a much more outright vote Democrat than any religious right figure I've ever heard of. Hmm. So it's it's gross hypocrisy of the worst, worst sort. Yeah, but I mean, kind of by playing in that space, you're saying Christians should feel conscience free to to wade right into there uh, with their Christian convictions. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. All I'm simply trying to say, and this is kind of issuing from from Richard John Newhouse, the founder of First Things and who, who wrote a very famous book called The called the Naked Public Square, who was criticizing secularism. He, he basically said that Christians have a duty to find ways to translate their values and convictions in a pluralistic public square. Um, and, and that's and that's where I, I, I really do spend some time. And I have, a, I have a book coming out next year on this very subject, because one of my convictions as a Baptist is 
pluralism is a lamentable but normative condition. Um, it's lamentable in the sense that we want everyone to bow their knee to Christ, but we can't coerce that and bring that about on our own. That only comes about by the by the free preaching of the gospel and free responses. So that means post-resurrection, um, but then before the second coming of Christ, there is this intermediary period of time that we're living in that a lot of theologians have referred to as, as the seculum, which is where we get our understanding of the secular, where it's simply an acknowledgement that not all has yet been brought under the reign and rule of Christ. And so what do we do with difference of opinion on morality and religion? To me, it means you don't, you don't have heavy handed laws that try to, uh, you, you obviously have to legislate morality. That's everyone legislates morality. It's, it's that you can't try to bring religious difference, um, to an end by way of government. It has to be done by way of persuasion and by way of open debate. Well, thank you for that. And I'll just tell you, uh, that is one of the reasons I am so delighted that you are the executive director of the Carl Henry Institute. Uh, I have high hopes for uh, for that work and specifically your, your work through it. Um, I know we don't have you all day, so uh, it, it's maybe a bit abrupt, but could we transition into this debate your friends are having? And um if you could, for our listeners, maybe. Oh, absolutely. For- yeah. Sorry. I totally hijacked where you wanted to go with uh, that. So, yes, absolutely. Let's 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 discuss that. Oh, I, I didn't say it is a hijacking. Um, but if if our listeners aren't familiar, could you maybe give us a Cliff's note sur- summary of where the debate is and what you think the uh, the helpful angles are or where your allegiances fall into the argument? Yeah, sure. So, um, I mean, it began, I guess, in May of, of 19 when Sarab Amari criticized, who's a friend of mine who criticized David French, who's another friend of mine, and has honestly been a little bit thorny at times navigating some, some interesting relational tripwires here, because mm. I like both of them. Um, that, you know, David takes a very kind of more libertarian stance that the government is to be value neutral in regards to um, issues of morality. Uh, and so it's really about free access and free public, uh, a, a free public square. So hyper free speech. Uh, but then Sarab says, no, it's, the government needs to have a, a, a self-conscientious understanding of the common good. And it needs to actually, a government proper needs to cast a vision for its citizens that is helping its citizens live in accordance with their highest and ultimate good, which is a relationship with Christ. And so, I mean, I I hope I'm not being unfair to Sarab. I mean, he's kind of channeling a school of what you would call Catholic integralism, which is integrating um, kind of throne and altar together uh, in order to, again, have a very, very thick moral conception of the common good. Um, David French is saying, no, that's impossible. If you do that, you're going to allow the government um, to define what the good is for people. And as a Baptist, that should be very concerning because, again, I I mentioned earlier that we want to kind of keep the government from having heavy handed orthodoxies on religion, Um, quite simply because there's a very strong chance that if the government says, you know, we're going to be this as far as our religious code, we might disagree with it. Um, a lot of Christians are find this less problematic when it's a you know a broadly Judeo-Christian nation. But I mean, the, the hypothetical is, um, you know, do you want the government passing a law saying the Mormon Church or the Latter Day Saints are the official 
religious expression in the United States government. Well, no, we wouldn't want that because we disagree with it. So then if we disagree with it, we're now on the opposite side of a government orthodoxy and the government is going to rule and make decisions based on its understanding of what is right and wrong from a Mormon worldview. And so we would just disagree with that. So this this is not um, it's not moral neutrality. It's what I call contestability is what we want to prioritize as Christians and as Baptists. Contestability, uh, and I write about this in my in my book that's coming out, is merely this notion that society that we live in is fractured by sin, by debate, by pluralism. Um, and so it's our duty as Christians to make the arguments as vehemently and as civilly as we can and not to back off of those arguments, um, but to recognize that it is better, in my opinion, this is where I kind of ultimately side with David against Sarab, even though I think Sarab makes some good critiques, is um, I'm very fearful of what would happen when a government takes that much power in defining what the good is. Um, just because in Scripture, I think the principle of, of, of government actually has a pretty limited role. <laughs> you look at Romans 13, the, the government is basically there to uphold law um, for the sake of stability and to uh, arrest you and kill you when it needs to because uh, you're a threat to the common good uh, or a, a threat to public order, so to speak. Um, beyond that, I just don't see a place in Scripture where it's the job of the government to communicate a heavy-handed conception of the common good. Uh, that doesn't mean civil society can't have a thick conception of the common good. We, we have to have some degree of the common good for us to have a functioning civil society. It simply means that we're not giving the government total authority to define all aspects of the common good. Okay. Well, there's there's a lot to chew on there, and I'm I'm sure our listeners Definitely. are going to be interested in in digging into your work. But kind of seeing the the end of our time together coming, if if I could if I could loop back to the earlier part of our conversation and and ask you to respond to uh, not a critic but maybe a a pushback that would say, well, you know, with with French's idea of maintaining a a, a, a viewpoint neutral common space, or what you mm -hmm. said, sort of a a place where these ideas can battle, you know, competing ideas can battle out in the public square. Um, are we not living in a world where the progressive God is kind of ascendant in our governmental system? And if that is the case, what do we do to to maintain uh, an arena for ideas to fight, except fight for a greater Christian presence in governmental institutions? D does that question make sense? Yeah, no, that, that yeah, no, it definitely does. And so, so I mean, you're, you're the, that criticism actually kind of makes the point that I'm that I'm making at the metaphysical level of if progressivism is ascendant at the cultural level, it's all the more important to make sure the government is not being given all of the the, the power that matches the culture, which is why the government ultimately doesn't follow. Well, there's different ways to think about this. Um, the government, hypothetically, is beholden to the Constitution, which is a document that is really opposed to majoritarianism. Mm -hmm. um, it's supposed to it's supposed to be durable regardless of what the crowds have to say, so to speak. And so, if the First Amendment is a majoritarian, uh, uh, if it's immune to majoritarianism, hypothetically, that ought to give us all the more reason to champion it because. We get to tell the government to get out of our churches, uh, and it's it's the burden of the government to prove why they would need to restrict our liberty or restrict our speech. Uh, and so, 
I, I mean, I, again, I, I think it ends up making the argument of what of what a Baptist would want to say. I'm I'm losing my train of thought. There was one other element. Um, I was going to say I'm I'm failing to remember what it was. So I'm going to stop talking, and maybe if you keep talking, I'll uh, remember what it was. Well, I know that you are juggling uh, multiple things this morning as you are being generous with your uh, time with us. And so that, that lost train of thought is, uh, is perfectly <laughs> okay. You Finite humans can only do so many things. Well, actually, we've come kind of up to the, the limit of our time. And for your time, I just want to say thanks. Uh, you've been incredibly generous, and uh, I'm thankful for your work in 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 the broadest strokes, thankful for your time here. I'm going to put your Twitter account in the show notes on this episode. Uh, where else can people follow your work and, and where can they find more about that book you said you've got coming out later? Yeah. So it's a book coming out in May of 2021 called Liberty for All, um, uh, Defending Everyone's Religious Freedom in a Pluralistic Age, and trying to make a kind of a, a new Baptist argument for how religious liberty is not just an accident of history, but it's tied to Christian theology and it's kind of in our DNA. Um, that'll come out in May. Uh, it'll be on Amazon soon, um, but probably Twitter is the best place to connect with me. I'm, I'm pretty active there. Okay. And listener again, that's the link to his Twitter account is going to be in the show notes, but it's also, um, if you want to hear it verbally, Andrew T. Walk on Twitter. Well, Andrew, thanks again for your time. Thanks for your work. Uh, keep up all the good work, brother. Jeff, it's uh, great to chat with you and, and good to catch up on your podcast, all right? All right. Well, thank you again. <laughs>